Good morning, Outlook family. Sure is good to see everyone this morning. Many thanks go to everyone who were a part of Adventure Week. Uh, how many people in here got to be a part of that? Raise your hand. Yeah. If you see anyone uh, in an Adventure Week shirt or you just know that they were involved, make sure you thank them. And especially if you see Amy Christman, our kids minister, or Natalie Ahonen, who was also her right-hand person and in charge of Adventure Week, make sure you tell them thank you. It was a wonderful week. It really was. Uh, well, happy Father's Day uh, to everyone, whether you're here with me in the room or we're together online. I'm really looking forward to jumping into God's Word. We are in the middle of a series moving through the New Testament letter to the Hebrews. And speaking of Adventure Week, three men came to pray together each night of Adventure Week. John Hoskins, Steve Cook, and John Montgomery. The latter two of those three are with us this morning, and they will be reading our passage from Hebrews to us. So let's give it up for Steve Cook and John Montgomery. Come on up, guys. Thanks, Steve. Thank you, Rob. Good morning. This is a passage from Hebrews, chapter 3, 1 through 14. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts upon Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Matthew, excuse me, Hebrews 3, verses 12 up through 14. It says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. Awesome. Thank you guys very much. Appreciate you both. Thank you guys so much. Let's pray together, everyone. Lord, we thank you for this passage of Scripture that you saw fit to make sure was inspired and written down that we could read it together this many centuries later. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would be our teacher as we gather here in these next few moments. Our Bibles are open, our hearts and minds are too, Lord. We pray that you would use it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What we're going to see in this passage can be summed up like this. Once you've met Jesus, don't let go or go back. Don't let go and don't go back to whatever life was like before 
you met him. No matter what age or stage of life you're in, no matter how exposed you've been to church and churchy things, no matter how experienced you are in mission or in ministry, no matter how much expertise you have in scripture and in study, today's message is very relevant to each and every one of us because we're all we're all in danger of forgetting how important it is to not let go or go back once we've met Jesus. So let's dive right in to our passage this morning. Everyone with me? Okay, just checking, just checking. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. Now let's just start right out the gate. Holy Heavenly? Are, are, is that me? Are they talking about us here? Like, am I qualified? Is this about me as, as we get started here? It may be tempting to wonder, maybe, or to uh, conclude that's probably not me. That's someone else. Words like that don't apply to me. But I want you to know that in Jesus, in, those words do apply to us. And it's only in Jesus that they apply to us. Amen? But as we say yes to Jesus, as we come to hear his good news, as something in us is moved to say yes to that, to receive that grace, then yes, holy and heavenly, if those things are describing our growth in Jesus, then yes, they do apply. In fact, really, we are simply people, as Jesus followers, who have heard and responded to that calling, right? We've heard a call, an invitation, and something in us is saying yes to that. We're acknowledging, again, we're just simply acknowledging who Jesus is. We're not people who've got it all figured out. We're not people who've got it all together. We are people who've realized who does have it all figured out and who can keep us and put us all together. Amen? So that's, that's who this is written to. And yes, we can include ourselves as recipients of these words. Don't count yourself out. Whether you're here with me in the room or we're together online or you're watching this at some other later date, don't count yourself out. Amen? Turn to your neighbor and say, don't count yourself out. I think that's what the preacher's trying to say. Don't count yourself out, okay? Now, what are we to do here? Right out the gate, we're told to fix our thoughts. This means to apply your mind with diligence would be another way of phrasing this Greek, original Greek uh, word to give consistent attention, to fix, to fasten your thoughts on this subject. And this is really life in Christ. This is what it means to be his disciple, to turn and to return our thoughts to this subject, which is always relevant and compelling and interesting and useful. The subject is Jesus, to turn and return my thoughts always back to Jesus. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Let him be the first factor in any decision that you make. Let him be the primary premise of any philosophy you consider. Keep fixing your thoughts on Jesus, who he is, what he taught, how he lived, how good he is, how much he loves you, how his grace flows, no matter what we've done we, to never deserve it, how all those aspects of Jesus are completely worth our fixated thoughts on him. You want to fixate on something, Jesus is a great subject. Amen? He lived among us as one of us. 
He taught us. He suffered alongside us. He died for us. He intercedes on our behalf as one who completely understands and empathizes with us. We've learned all of this so far just in, in our brief beginning into this letter of Hebrews. And so now we're told, consider him. Give him your full consideration because you can count on the fact that he constantly considers you. Keep your mind on him because you, I can guarantee you, are on his mind. Amen? Verse 1. Let's move to verse 2. He was faithful, describing Jesus, to the one who appointed him. Speaking of God the Father, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Now, what, what, why, why is Moses being brought up here? What, what's the point of our passage this morning? Well, remember, this letter was written to Hebrews, to Jewish people who have now said, yes, Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. So, so many of the letters of the New Testament are written primarily to non-Jewish people or Gentiles, people whose heritage does not include uh, being well-versed in the Hebrew Scriptures that we now call our Old Testament. This is not part of their, their, kind of their own life story. But for these Christians, it absolutely is. And so Moses was a hero to these people. They were raised to learn the words of Moses, the law of Moses. Moses was right up there uh, with the, the, just the greatest of all God's servants. And so the writer of this letter is reminding these Christians about something that he knows is going to be important for them to remember, and it could easily be something that they're going to get hung up on. So let's dive into this. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was, was faithful. So Moses, hero of the faith. Who was he? He was the deliverer of Israel, right? If you know anything about the story of the nation of Israel, the people of God, they were enslaved for 400 years in the nation of Egypt. God uses Moses through a series of miracles to free the people from Egypt. They, they leave that place and then they begin to form their own nation, headed to the promised land. And through Moses, God also gives, Moses is the transcriber and the administrator of a law code that sets this new nation ahead of every other. So this is Moses in a nutshell, an absolute hero of the faith. And uh, he should be considered exactly that. But the writer of Hebrews is telling these folks, focus not on Moses and the law, but now focus on Jesus and his love. Verse 3, Jesus has been found worthy of a greater honor than even Moses. Just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself, for every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. And remember, he's already written, Jesus is God. So the writer is saying, hey, let's remember who's who and who did what. Moses, absolutely powerful servant and leader in God's story. But Jesus is the culmination of that story. As we learned last week and the week before, Jesus is the exclamation point at the end of God's message. He is his greatest and final word. And so the writer of Hebrews feels important to let these Hebrew Christians know that even though Moses deserves glory and, and honor and that he should be respected and venerated, Jesus deserves far more that even though Moses was a servant in God's house, so to speak, Jesus is the builder of that house. So he's urging them to not go backwards from the greater 
to the lesser. Why would, why would this reminder be an important thing? Because the heat is on for these Christians. Uh, persecution and pressure to maybe, to, let's just cool off all this Jesus talk for a minute. It would really make life a lot easier if we all went back to being good, law-abiding Jews. And that would have been very tempting for these new believers uh, who already had a pretty cushy place within society. Judaism was accepted within the Roman Empire, and so they could practice their faith without too much trouble. But saying yes to Jesus, declaring him and not Caesar to be Lord and all of that, man, that puts you in a whole other situation. And so they were feeling that heat, and it would have been tempting to just kind of, let's just go back to the way things were just enough religion to feel righteous, but nothing so radical as to get us in trouble. It's not unlike what we commemorate today on Juneteenth in our nation's history, when the news of emancipation finally reached the last of the enslaved individuals, and they got to hear that, and then they could celebrate their freedom. The writer of Hebrews is saying, don't live under that old law. Something so much better than before is now here. Here's the way John put it in his gospel. If if you're new to the Bible, there are these first four books of what we call the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they are all telling the story of the words, actions, teachings, death, resurrection of Jesus. And in John, he begins his gospel Uh, by making this point, a point very similar to the one we're reading now, written decades later to the Hebrews. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He's, He's setting a contrast there as well. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So it's the consistent witness of the scriptures that Jesus is categorically different than everyone else, every other, quote, Bible character, you might say, right? Jesus is above and categorically different than everyone. He is God in the flesh. So as great as any single one of God's servants may have been from over those centuries and millennia, Jesus is in a category unto himself, So back to Hebrews, the writer goes on. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, quoting from the book of Numbers, deep there into what we call our Old Testament, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. And what was spoken by God in the future? Ultimately, we just heard that a week or two ago, Jesus was spoken. Jesus was God's best and final word. And it says Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house, very much mirroring the language we just read in the Gospel of John. So nothing is being taken away from Moses here. The writer of Hebrews absolutely says that Moses was certainly a faithful servant. But the illustration, he was illustrating God's truths that would be ultimately revealed in the Messiah. Now, when we think about stuff like this, I'm immediately remembering a story in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus Uh, was constantly butting up against those who were experts in this law of Moses. So this is a super relevant thing for the, the, the people at the time. So let me tell you this little exchange that happens in Matthew chapter 12. It illustrates this perfectly. It says, about that time, Jesus was walking through some grain fields 
on the Sabbath. Let's stop right there. There's plenty of rules and laws regarding the Sabbath, the seventh day, what you could or could not do on that day. It's a perfectly great uh, law and the set of laws, and the Sabbath is a gift from God to his people, a day of rest, right? But by Jesus' day, all kinds of regulations had kind of grown up and, and uh, some very narrow interpretations of what could or couldn't be done, what was allowed and not allowed on the Sabbath. So now in this scene, it's the Sabbath, Jesus and his disciples walking through some grain fields. His disciples were hungry, so they began breaking off some heads of grain and eating them. So kind of like you might have some sunflower seeds or I don't know, whatever, if you like that, a little snack. They're hungry, they're walking by, they grab the heads of grain, they do this, and then they begin to have a little snack. But wouldn't you know, some Pharisees, experts in the law of Moses, saw them do it and protested. Look, your disciples are breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath. Now, at this point, I don't know, I don't want to be presumptuous, but I think Jesus, if Jesus ever smirked in his life, this would have been a prime moment to do it, right? The Pharisees, the, you remember when you were in school and you were little and there were some kid in the class was always the tattletale, right? Remember that? Well, the Pharisees are absolutely playing the role of the tattletale at this point. Number one, it's like, where'd they come from? These guys are just walking through the grain fields, but Pharisees seem to be fixated in a bad way on Jesus and trying to catch him and his guys in doing something wrong. And so they're having a little snack. It happens to be the Sabbath, and they now are calling that grain harvesting, which is illegal on the Sabbath. And you've got to imagine Jesus is just like, what are you talking about? He says to them, haven't you read in the scriptures that David, what David and his companions did when they were hungry? And he reaches back into the Hebrew scriptures and talks about how there was a time in which King David and his companions actually ate the bread that was dedicated to God in the temple. Something only priests are allowed to eat. And then he makes this statement, and haven't you read in the law of Moses, there it is again, the law of Moses is immediately relevant to, to Hebrew people, the Hebrew Christians who are right, receiving our letter. Haven't you read in the law of Moses that the priests on duty in the temple may work on the Sabbath? So in other words, there's already laws on the books that say there are some people who are allowed to work on the Sabbath. So cool your jets, because I'm about to tell you that one is here who is greater even than the temple and the Sabbath, right? In other words, who is that one? It's me, Jesus says. I can do anything I want on the Sabbath because I'm the inventor and the giver of the Sabbath. This is going to blow your mind for right now, but you need to recognize that that's what's happening. And so you are getting caught up on the minutia of your regulations based on what you feel is the, the law of Moses, when instead the culmination of that law is standing before you, and you can't even begin to see it. You think the right thing to do in this moment is to accuse my disciples of being guilty of breaking the Sabbath. One greater than the temple, he says, is here. Now, the writer of, of, of our letter is telling us, don't fix your eyes on this, the law of Moses, but fix your eyes and thoughts on Jesus. And then see everything else, including this good law, through the lens of Jesus and his message, his truth, his love. 
Now, as we're gathered here this morning in 2022, here where we are, it may not be the temple or the law that is our major hang-up, right? That may not be the thing that we use or are tempted to use as our first lens through which we see the world. For us, it may be power or wealth or image, or race, or likability, or justice, or success, or politics, or philosophy, or even religion. Some even very good and necessary things that I named there. Things which should never be neglected or ignored. But none of them can become our first lens, so to speak. The thing through which we see everything else. Our primary go-to when it comes to understanding our world or directing our lives. It always must be Jesus. As his followers, we allow him and his truth to be the first thing we consider when we look at everything else. And there are plenty of things that deserve our attention in this world, but we must see them through the lens of Jesus. So we've seen here that Jesus is greater than the temple. Again, for you and me, ah, okay, fine. I, we'll concede that in a second. It doesn't even uh, bother us. Sure, he's greater than the temple. We see that. Jesus is greater than Moses. Okay, point taken. We can see that too now as New Testament believers in Jesus. That is a message that we can readily accept. But for us, any of those other things may be things that are, we're tempted to have trouble putting in that blank. But is Jesus really greater than? Jesus is greater than good looks. Jesus is greater than good vibes. Jesus is greater than good money. Jesus is greater than everything else in our lives. But a great test, a great litmus test, so to speak, of our own discipleship could be to ask ourselves, but why do I have trouble putting in that blank? Jesus is greater than financial security? Well, we're in church on a Sunday morning, so we might say, sure he is. Yeah, but in our day-to-day -day lives and decision-making, it might be good to reflect, but am I really acting and deciding things in a way that make that true? Or am I tempted to feel like financial security is pretty darn great, maybe even greater than my faith? Or maybe it's popularity or likability or having a good reputation or success at work or on and on and on. These things could be troublesome to put in that blank for us if we have a hard time. What rivals Jesus and his life for you and for me? It's a good question to ask. What we're being reminded of today is that Christ really is over all. He's over everything. He's the builder of everything, and he is greater than it all. Now, the passage goes on, talking about Moses is a servant in God's house, Jesus is the builder of the house, and then it says, we are his house if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence in the hope in which we glory. Now, this is an important word to those initial recipients. Kicked out of the synagogue, which would have been their Jewish house of worship, they needed to hear that they're not kicked out of God's real and true home. That would have been a big sacrifice, a terrible blow to receive, to be kicked out of the synagogue. And yet for Jesus, they had been willing to do it. And they needed to remind it, but we're God's house. God is doing a new thing, and it's called the church. And you're in that church. You're still in his family. So this, was, this would have not been insignificant to these Jewish Christians. They needed to hear that the church of Jesus Christ is 
the people of God, the house of God, his household. Peter and Paul use similar language in their letters. If indeed, it says, we hold firmly. Now, this won't be the only time we read in this letter, even in this passage today, the importance of holding firmly. In the original language, this is the same word Jesus uses in his parable of the seeds. When he, remember, you might remember this story he tells about God's word is like seed and it falls on different types of soil. And they each represent the human heart, our own character. Some is rocky, the seed doesn't grow. Some gets picked up by birds, that seed doesn't grow. Some is choked by weeds, that seed doesn't grow. And then he says, but the seeds that fell on good soil represent honest, good-hearted people who hear God's word and cling to it, hold firmly to it. Same original word in the Greek and patiently produce a huge harvest. That is who we're aiming to be. Amen? People who hold firmly to the truth of God. We can rest assured God is holding firmly to us, but we're also exhorted here more than once that we too need to hold firmly or cling to or let that seed be planted deeply in us so that confidence and hope in in God can grow. In verse 7, the writer goes on, and as the Holy Spirit says, and now he's about to quote from Psalm 95, the beautiful songbook of the Hebrew Scriptures. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. So he's using a passage that these original readers would have known very well from their psalms, and he's reminding them that it still applies today. That when Israel rebelled, which they got quite good at, right, over their history, the writer of Hebrews is saying that can happen to any of us even today. And man, these Israelites weren't just anybody. Think of all that they had experienced and witnessed in the Exodus and in the law and in all the goodness that God had done for them. And yet they would forget, their memories would be short, and they would let their hearts be hardened. And people are the same. They haven't changed. You and I haven't changed. God can do amazing things in our lives, and then we can also reach a point in which we find those things hard to remember and our hearts get hard. So if you don't remember anything else that we talk about this morning, I would urge you to remember these words. Don't let your heart become hardened. Maybe that's exactly the thing that you needed to hear today. I often need to hear it. We suffer from disappointment or pain or loneliness or bitterness or anger, and all of these things can serve to harden our hearts. And it's at that moment that we have a choice to make. I was talking to a brother between services this morning. Today's Father's Day. He has an estranged relationship with his father. Uh, His father has been hurtful and disappointing in his life, and he and his sister's life. And he woke up today fighting some of those feelings. And he was this close to sending a text to his dad that would have been not edifying, right? Speaking some of what was on his mind, but in a way that maybe wouldn't have been terribly constructive. And he got to church and he decided to pray. And he came in here and in worship he began to pray for his dad instead of sending that text. That was a moment for him where his heart was either going to get harder, it was going to harden toward another person, his dad, or he was going to make the choice to let his heart not harden and instead perhaps even in prayer soften. 
toward his dad. He made a choice right there. And it's the kind of choice that you and I face in a hundred different scenarios every day, right? Will my heart harden or soften in this situation? And here's what the writer, here's the advice the writer gives us. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you, someone say none of you, has a sinful or unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, referring back to that Psalm 95 passage, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Hear the earnestness in these words. Hardness of heart can affect any of us and will without attentiveness on our part and the encouragement of others. That's what we read here. Sin is deceitful. Don't fall for it. The devil is a liar. Don't listen to him. Every day is instead a good day to stay near the living God. Make that true today. See to it, we're told. And this process of of the hardening of our hearts, the, the being hardened by sin's deceitfulness, man, it is subtle and hard to perceive at any given moment. Today, I may do something that's merely careless, or I may not do something I should have done in a careless, uh, because of my carelessness. But that carelessness tomorrow becomes something truly thoughtless, and then wayward, and then I become dim in my mind and numb in my heart, and then eventually outright rebellious, deceived, disobedient, and finally hardened. And the fact is, any of us can get pretty far down that road pretty quickly. Have you ever experienced that? Today's errant thought becomes tomorrow's wayward action, and by the end of the week, you hardly can recognize yourself if you don't take care and see to it. That's why we watch out for each other, warn each other while it's still called today, we're told. There is no room in the Scriptures, and certainly not in this letter, for the individualist in our faith. We're reading a lot of we and our and one another, and we will continue to do so. That ours is a faith that's lived out together. We need each other's support. I need to remind you, and you need to remind me, don't hang on to anything that loosens your grip on Jesus, but instead hold tight to what's right and good and true. Because friends, once you've met Jesus, and if you haven't met him yet, you're in a good spot. I hope you'll hang out with us and, uh, and begin to check that out for yourself. But once you've met him, don't let go and don't go back. Once you see Jesus, once you've become, uh, come to understand uh, his love for you and his grace that he wants to give you, don't lose sight of him. Our passage concludes, if we've come to share in Christ, or we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. That word shares, second time we've seen it in this passage, it means to partake. We partake in the heavenly calling. We are partaking in Christ. I want to invite you right now to take your bread and cup as we partake in what Jesus asked us to do in the Lord's Supper. Because we don't know when the end will come. Right? We don't know when it will come, but we're supposed to hold our conviction firmly to the very end. You've probably seen the headlines from this week about St. Stephen's Episcopal near Birmingham, Alabama. Earlier this week, they were having what they called a potluck for boomers, right? I was especially moved by this story because here at our church, we have our own monthly uh, meal 
for folks of a certain maturity. And I think of how much I love each of them and how sweet it is to hang out with them in our student loft every month. And the idea that someone could come in and then take their lives, three of their lives in this case, a woman in her 70s and then a man and a woman in their 80s, snuffed out, just like that, at a church potluck of all places. I think about how we do that and how we had just had ours, and I reflect that we are to hold firmly to the very end. But we don't know when that end is. And as long as it's called today, we are to encourage one another to do just that. Amen? When we take our bread and cup each week, we are holding firmly to our original conviction. In in the truest of sense, talk about original. The night before Jesus goes to the cross, he takes bread... And he says, this is my body broken for you. This is the original conviction, who Jesus is to us. So let's take as he asks us to and remember him. And we take the cup. We're also doing as he asked. We are indeed holding an original conviction that God has made a new promise. We're going to hear about this new promise again and again throughout the letter of Hebrews. And that new promise is one of grace and love and forgiveness that we receive by faith. In who? In Jesus Christ, the one and only, the ultimate and supreme. Let's take and drink together. Let's pray. Lord, we know that this letter was originally written to people who were in danger of abandoning their faith, who were in danger of letting their hearts grow hard, who were in danger of letting their thoughts not be fixed, but instead drift. Lord, that's us. We are those people too. You know it, and we acknowledge it. And we thank you, God, that you're with us no matter what. And so, Lord, we ask that you would in every way help us to cling to you, to fix our thoughts, to see to it, to hold firmly. That's who we are strive to be who we pray to be who we ask you to make us thanks for answering that prayer lord thanks for walking with us through our lives and we give you all the praise and the glory in your mighty name amen